parasites really are the, the dark matter of biodiversity. There's a, there's a huge, there's all this parasite diversity, this, this dark matter, and we don't know anything about it. And we need to start studying it because it, or studying it more intensely than we are presently, funding more study of it, bringing more parasitologists in, encouraging, bringing up more parasitologists in the field so that we can really get a handle on this, this stunning but very overlooked aspect of our sort of global biodiversity and ecosystems. Welcome to Animalia, a podcast all about making it easy and inclusive to learn about this big, beautiful planet, the life we share it with, and how to protect it. When you think of species conservation, how often do parasites come to mind? Well, for most of us, probably never. But you're going to learn today why that's not ideal. So can we turn you into a supporter of parasites in just an hour? Well, let's find out. The world of parasites is vast and still mostly unknown. In fact, one of the most ambitious goals of parasitologists is to one day identify half of all species. They range from tapeworms to ticks to plants to viruses. And while they don't necessarily benefit their hosts directly, they often have big-time benefits to our ecological systems and can benefit host species in plenty of indirect ways. They're also potentially our keys for unlocking better protection against future viruses and bacteria. We just have to learn more about them. In order to do that, we need to actively conserve them as well. So while I'm not expecting our listeners to think of parasites the same way you think of elephants, pandas, orcas, and other culturally revered threatened species, I do hope you'll listen to this episode with an open mind and a full heart, even for that cringe-worthy tapeworm. As we'll soon find out, even tapeworms serve pretty valuable roles. Joining us today is Mackenzie Kwok, a parasitologist from Singapore, who is arguably the captain of the Parasite Fan Club. While most parasitologists around the world focus on studying these organisms to better combat parasite-borne illnesses such as malaria, which is caused by mosquitoes being infected by the plasmodium parasite, Mackenzie is one of the few who focuses his time on studying them for the purpose of conservation. The biodiversity crisis facing this planet is as critical and existential as the climate one and parasites are the glue that hold many of our ecosystems together. So what do you say? Let's find out why. More after the short break. If you're a fan of the Animalia podcast and want to help us keep it going, it would really help to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're using. These reviews go a long way in increasing discovery and helping us land great hosts like Mackenzie. Even if your review is negative, that's okay too. Help us find ways we can improve. Sharing with a friend works as well. I mean, I'm sure someone you know needs more parasites in their life. Wait, that, that came off wrong. Well, you get it. Thanks for your support, and now back to the episode. Okay, let's start with the brass taxes here. What exactly is a parasite from the scientific definition? So when we talk about life, we can separate them into various kind of categories. A parasite is an organism which takes some sort of resource or nutrient from a host species while imparting no benefit. That's the idea. So a virus, for instance, is a parasite. Viruses reproduce within a host cell. Very often they destroy the host cell in the process and they reproduce themselves in that. In some cases, tapeworms live in your intestine They'll be absorbing some of the nutrients from the food that you've ingested, um, and they're not necessarily giving you a benefit. So, so it's it's much more a way of life than any kind of uh, shared 
uh, common ancestor or anything like that. Many species have evolved into this uh, system of taking some sort of nutrient while not necessarily imparting some benefit. That being said, even if you are taking nutrients, you might be taking so little that the host has no major ill effects. The host is not getting anything, but maybe the effect is very, very minimal. Um, so not enough to necessarily kill the host or, or cause serious disease, but maybe some mild discomfort or something like that. Um, so we can think of, say, viruses are certainly a kind of parasite. Tapeworms are a kind of parasite. Mistletoe, as we're coming up to Christmas in a few months, mistletoe is another parasite that lives. It's a hemiparasite that lives on a on a tree and on various tree species, different mistletoe species, a very very diverse group of plants, and they'll absorb nutrients and moisture from the tree that they're, they're embedded into the, the xylem tissue of the tree, but they'll also do a little bit of photosynthesis on their own. So they'll, they'll create their own sugars, but they'll be sort of robbing the tree of, of some nutrients or resources. And certainly we think of this as a bad, or a, commonly people think of this as a very bad system, but I mean, that's sort of, uh, what would you say, a very human attitude of trying to be fair and trying to be equitable and, and this sort of stuff, which Nature isn't necessarily fair. Nature isn't equitable. Most of the offspring of most species or most individual animals or plants, whatever, are completely destroyed. So nature is not this fair ethical playground where everybody plays nice with each other. Plenty of organisms do all sorts of nasty, malevolent things to one another. Well, it's not malevolent. They're not intending to be mean, but they they do. Uh, they they have negative consequences for other players within commute biological communities. Um, so parasites are just organisms which derive some benefit from an organism while not necessarily giving a benefit back. And the, the human view, I, I would venture to say, I would not give humans a, a passing grade on fairness and equality across our history. No, we're not so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, we like to think we're good, but we're not always we, uh, so Oh, ethical. we certainly would give ourselves that on an individual basis, but I, I don't think anybody would, would give us that as a species. As Mackenzie laid out, a parasite does not have any direct benefits to its host. Its host is not relying on that parasite for normal function or survival, unlike other non-parasitic symbiotic relationships in nature. However, that doesn't necessarily imply the parasite is a danger to its host either. Some can be for sure, especially in the wrong doses, but oftentimes the direct relationship is fairly neutral. Where it gets really interesting is looking at the impact the parasite has on the surrounding ecosystem some of the different indirect benefits they can offer their hosts and future benefits we humans can unlock and these incredibly resilient creatures. So how does one become a parasitologist? What would compel someone to dedicate their entire life to parasites? How did you get into this line of work? At what point in your life did you decide, you know, parasites is, is where I want to spend my, my time, my days. Did you have a, I don't know if that came with a direct relationship with a parasite or a certain tapeworm that you grew fond of yourself, or if there is another inciting incident. And then what is a day in the life look like for you in terms of, you know, uh, your day to day? So when I was a little kid, I actually, I loved animals. I think there's this great, uh, great British parasitologist, uh, biologist, Miriam Rothschild, who's quite a hero of mine, um, who was the world expert on fleas during her lifetime. She also invented the seatbelt. So she's she worked at Bletchley Park during the war. She used to say that um, she was the world uh, expert on fleas, and she invented the seatbelt. She also invented there's, the seatbelt. There's no correlation there that I'm missing, right? That she just... was a no, no. I mean, she did a lot of things. She was a great advocate for for mental health issues. She was a great advocate for gay rights before um, when when uh, 
the, the gay community in, say, Britain was being absolutely terribly persecuted. Um, uh, so she did many, many things. She was interested in butterflies. She was interested in uh, uh, smells and colors and sort of volatile chemistry within ecosystems. That's cool. um, so she, she was sound, quite a diverse. She, yeah, she, she, she was bit. from the Rothschild family. So her, her uncle Walter um, had the museum at Trigg. Hmm. Um, but basically she had this, this saying, um, she used to say that naturalists aren't made, they're born. Um, and, and maybe that's true to some extent. I tend to agree with that. I think certainly people get very passionate about nature, but many, many of the naturalists that I know, work with, love, etc. almost all of them, from the moment they were crawling, they loved biology, they loved nature, they loved organisms, they loved plants and animals, and they were fascinated by turning over stones and seeing what was underneath or growing seeds at home, all sorts of that, that sort of thing. Not to say that people can't become naturalists. Um, and so I always felt, or Miriam Rothschild's words really resonated in that sense. Since I was little, I've, I can't imagine a time when I've ever not been interested in living organisms. Um, everything, all of it, it's all really fascinating. This beautiful kaleidoscope of life, nature's fantastic inventions. Um, so I was always kind of interested in, in living things. Um, and as a kid, I was always fascinated by plants. I started growing, I think I got my first Venus flytrap when I was about seven and I've grown carnivorous plants and other sort of interesting plants that sort of have interactions with other organisms, ant plants, carnivorous plants, uh, interesting orchids and things like that. Um, and then I sort of got interested in insects. And as I was uh, developing an interest in insects and entomology, I started getting curious about the, the medically and veterinarily important species. So mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, lice, things like that. I read this book um, by James Lockwood called Six-Legged Soldiers, which was about the use of insects in warfare, entomological warfare. And it sort of traced through history from the stone age of people hurling uh, hornets nests at one another um, in sort of tribal stone age warfare, all the way through to the, the Mongols flinging plague infected corpses into besieged cities. And then all the way through to uh, the Japanese in the Second World War, Unit 731, uh, mobilizing and weaponizing uh, bubonic plague in fleas and dropping these flea bombs all across, say, China and Southeast Asia to try and turn the tide of the war through uh, parasitic warfare by inducing these great plague epidemics. In fact, when you look at uh, Unit 731's uh, activities in China, they killed more with their uh, plague epidemics, which they engineered within China, than all the people that died in both atomic bomb attacks. So it was a really, really effective, uh, or, or certainly a, a very lethal form of warfare. And so thinking of this, I thought, well, these things are clearly turning, in, in some cases, they turn the tide of history. Napoleon probably couldn't take Russia because his his soldiers had outbreaks of, of lice typh lice-born typhus which they picked up as they were marching across Eastern Europe. We know Alexander the Great probably died of malaria. Um, we know that probably the reason democratic Taiwan, uh, one of the probably the freest and most democratic nation in all of Asia where I'm based, probably exists because uh, as Mao was marching his troops down to the South to try and have a, a lead an amphibious invasion of uh, Taiwan that they all developed schistosomiasis from blood flukes as they were training to learn how to swim for amphibious assaults in the rivers outside Shanghai. So, so many of the, uh, certainly it, it stalled the troops to some extent long enough for the Korean War to sort of start to look like it's getting 
uh, going and the American warships to come in and defend the Straits of Taiwan. So parasites have really shaped history in these dramatic ways. And so how can you kind of not be interested in these organisms? Um, so I sort of started off with an interest in arthropod parasites because that is sort of was the natural progression from entomology. But the more I spent time with arthropod parasites, the more I got interested in non-arthropod parasites. So things like parasitic worms and parasitic protozoa. And so from there, I think I took a, as an undergraduate, I took a third year subject with a friend of mine um, called Animal Health. And it ended up being a, a nice even mix of immunology and parasitology. And I like absolutely blitzed that subject. I loved it. I like was fully in love. The moment I started that subject, I was like, yep, this is what I want to do. And so from there, I'd already had these kind of hints that maybe this is something I'd like to work on. And from there, I was kind of like, well, it affects people. They have all these great ecosystem impacts. They impact the course of history. They're, they're master manipulators of nervous systems and immune systems and things. They're fantastic organisms. They're having all these clever impacts on hosts and ecosystems. How could you not want to spend your life doing this? And I could have equally worked on mosses or carnivorous plants or butterflies or something like that. But these really, really, they're all fascinating, but these really, really captured my imagination. So from there, I was kind of uh, set uh -huh. and I've been doing it ever since. Do you, do you have a, a favorite parasite? Oh, that's hard. I mean, there's <laughs> so many of them. They're all fabulous. Um, I have at least one species I'm, I'm really very fond of is the goblin flea. I actually gave it its common name. Its, it's scientific name is uh, Stephanocircus domroi. And it's only found, I, I mean, perhaps the reason I like it is because it's highly, highly threatened. And it's a fascinating, beautiful little, very, very primitive flea. It's a group that probably evolved just at the end of the era of dinosaurs, certainly the ancestors. Its ancestors split from the other fleas, the lineage separated about the time that the dinosaurs were starting to, or just about to relinquish the world to, to other organisms. Um, and this species now lives on my, my home state, uh, Victoria in Australia, its faunal emblem, which is the leadbeater's possum, uh, which is very, very, very critically endangered. I think uh, the IUCN Red List listed it a few years ago as one of its top 10 most uh, threatened uh, species, most at risk of going extinct. Uh, extinct. And so this beautiful little possum that can sort of sit in the palm of your hand. Uh, the common name, uh, one of the common names for the leadbeater's possum, apart from the leadbeater's possum, is the fairy possum. And so when I was thinking of raising publicity or trying to raise awareness and interest of this little flea called the goblin flea, we thought, oh, well, goblins and fairies, that's a nice... Uh, so they sort of play on each other pretty well. And it's sort of a, a sort of ugly little flea. It's got a, I mean, I think they're absolutely charming, but they have this sort of strange little helmet along their head that's rimmed with these little sort of denticles, these uh, uh, little spikes. Um, and they basically live, they seem pretty amicably with these possums. There's no evidence to suggest that they're actually causing major deleterious effects on the possum. So they, they take a blood meal and they kind of live reasonably amicably, as we see with most uh, highly, uh, what would you say, co-evolved species. When you have a parasite and a host that has spent a very long evolutionary trajectory together, you tend to, or that tends to lead to uh, evolution of um, reduced impacts on one another. There's less antagonism typically within the relationship to some extent. When you get sort of foreign, quite foreign parasites, um, they typically cause much more serious impacts, um, partly because the immune system hasn't evolved to deal with them sometimes quite as effectively, or they're in this kind of sweet, this awkward sweet spot 
but the immune system can't quite deal with them and they cause major uh, pathogenicity. Um, whereas species that have been evolving for, together for a very long time tend to go towards more of an amicable existence, it seems. Mm. So this, this, this flea seems to live quite amicably with this uh, possum and they live in these absolutely stunning uh, ecosystems, these uh, mountain ash forests, which we get in uh, Southern Australia, you get them in Tasmania and, and to a lesser extent in Victoria. And then these mountain ash is the tallest flowering plant on earth. And these things grow hundreds of feet high, very, very, very big trees, gargantuan. Sometimes they can sort of be as wide as a room. They're, they're real uh, angiosperm uh, competitors to the great redwoods of California. So these are truly titanic forests and they're these beautiful, wet, lush, ferny, all the understory is beautiful, this beautiful canopy of tree ferns. And then below that, you get this uh, beautiful uh, carpets of different mosses and bryophytes and fungi. It's, it's like a coral reef on land. It's so much diversity, so much color and texture. And at the top of these trees or up these trees in the canopy, you find these wonderful fairy possums sort of darting around the canopy and these charming little goblin fleas sort of hanging on and, and going along for the ride living in the nest. So they're probably my favorite. Um, and they're, they're so imperiled that the bushfires increasingly wipe out these very sensitive uh, mountain ash forests, which unlike many eucalypts, which regenerate after fire, mountain ash always dies after fire. And so they regenerate from seed. So how long does it take for a seed to grow into a tree that's as wide as a room? Quite a while. So they're, they're very sensitive. And then on top of that, we have a state sponsored logging company called Vic Forests, which is incessantly uh, logging all the forests of this wonderful little possum and this threatened flea species. Um, so it's, it's I, I don't know if when I have my own kids, whether I'll be able to talk to them about, should we go out and, and spotlight for fairy possums in this wonderful little flea or will they be completely gone and there'll be just an, another casualty on the long list of Australia's mammal extinctions? I don't know, but at the way it's going, it's not looking terribly good. All you need is one super fire um, or can, another decade, which we seem to have locked in of old growth logging or, or old mountain ash logging in Victoria. So we'll see what happens, but certainly I find them absolutely charming, beautiful little things, very overlooked, very, very pretty. Um, certainly my favorites. Yeah. The, the image you're conjuring up for me in terms of describing the, the sort of ecosystem, the fairy possums and the goblins, it's it sort of like, it's ringing uh, sort of images of Pandora from Avatar. In yeah, yeah, it's, it's the closest um, thing to Pandora you can get yeah. on planet Earth, I would yeah. say. Yeah. Um, Absolutely stunning. Yeah. Well, sadly, we are, we are quickly heading towards anything but Pandora in terms of what we're doing to the natural world. Well, I mean, you follow the movie <laughs> and we're basically doing the same thing. Find a beautiful, almost alien ecosystem and then destroy it. Which is very yes. unfortunate. Well, exploit it uh, and destroy yeah, it through yeah, exploitation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. If you've never seen a fairy possum, I encourage you to look it up right away. Unfortunately, it is as endangered as it is adorable, with its habitat shrinking in Australia due to logging of mountain ash forests. The goblin fee Mackenzie refers to here is quite an interesting looking fella as well. It is host specific, meaning if we lose fairy possums, we lose the goblin flea too. This is a stark reminder of how intricately connected species are in the natural world. From a scientific perspective, we basically just met the goblin flea, yet we may lose it before we know more about it. We touched earlier on the ecological benefits of parasite organisms. 
Let's give you a few examples that illustrate this. In terms of just setting a stage for our listeners before asking some more specifics about parasite host relationships around understanding the ecological benefits of parasites and how, how do we understand those? That's maybe you can give us a couple of tangible examples to sort of bring that to life a little bit. And, sure. uh, and then, you know, it, it seems like in the world of parasites, there's still probably a lot more we don't know than we know as is the case with a lot Absolutely. of the natural world. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so give us maybe a couple examples of those ecological benefits. We could, I mean, I brought up the yellow rattle as an example that I somewhat understand vaguely. Um, so, I mean, that's my favorite example. It's, okay, it's wonderful. Start, start yellow there. rattle let's is there, such a perfect example of parasite shaping ecosystems. And so essentially yellow rattle is a little plant that grows within grasslands, particularly in Europe. You get a lot of them in Britain and they're, they're really well known in Britain. You can actually buy the seeds from commercial suppliers in Britain to add to your wildflower mix. And essentially within uh, ecosystems, there's especially say grassland ecosystems, there's a lot of competition because everybody's competing for light. It's this huge uh, community of different species all reaching for the light and trying to crowd each other out to get to light essentially and nutrients to some extent as well. And so you have these hyper-competitive grasses, which are sort of the backbone of, of grasslands, of course, um, but there's lots of other herbs and forbs and things like that that want to be growing up in these ecosystems, things like our wildflowers. Um, but when there's lots of hyper-competitive grasses, typically your floral diversity or certainly your, your diversity of other wildflowers, what we would call wildflowers, certainly grasses flower as well, but other wildflowers declines, decreases, because you have these hyper-competitive grasses which are crowding them out. Yellow rattle, however, is a little plant parasite. It's a hemiparasite. So it actually produces green leaves and it photosynthesizes but it also hooks its root system into the root systems of these hyper-competitive grasses and it steals nutrients from them. So it's essentially a vampire of the wildflower meadow. And so as it steals nutrients from these grasses, it weakens them. And when the grasses are weakened, it allows the wildflowers to grow up. And so you have this, when yellow rattle is present, you have this great diversity of wonderful different wildflowers growing up in your meadow. And so then that of course brings in pollinators and you have a great diversity of different flies and beetles and butterflies and bees all descending on these otherwise quite boring grasslands that have been transformed by this parasite into these wonderful wildflower meadows. And then of course you have insects coming in and you have birds coming in. So insects to feed on the pollinators, predatory insects, spiders and, and predatory beetles and things like that. And then of course you have birds coming in and you have small mammals coming in, shrews and things. And then the stoats are following the, sh the, sh the shrews and the small mammals and you get owls coming in that are feeding on the small mammals and you get birds of prey, hawks and things that are coming and feeding on the little birds. And so you have this bottom up kind of ecosystem building from this humble little parasitic plant, which is creating diversity within these otherwise quite monotonous uh, communities. If you recall from our series of summer, the American War on Wolves, we touched on this trophic cascade of impact. Wolves impact the behavior of ungulate species in many different ways. Those behavior changes provide opportunity for additional species. Those changes, in the case of wolves, even impact the health of our rivers in building up back vegetation around the banks, protecting them from sediment and erosion. Parasites can have a similar trophic cascade effect on their ecosystems. Some of them, the benefits seem a little bit less direct. So for instance, in at least salt, uh, some salt marsh ecosystems in, in the southern US, um, people have been studying the impacts of tapeworms on heavy metals. And tapeworms essentially sit in your gut 
and they don't actually steal uh, any of your uh, nutrients inside your body exactly. So they're not stealing your blood like hookworms. Um, instead, they are stealing the food that you would otherwise absorb. So you've gone to all this effort of digest digesting a burger or something, and it's going down through your intestines. Before your body can absorb it, the tapeworm is hanging out in there and it's absorbing nutrients through its flat, long sort of pasta-like body. Um, in these ecosystems though, uh, there's lots of heavy metals, these, these salt marsh kind of ecosystems in the Southern US. There's, there's things like cadmium and zinc, which are nasty if they build up into very high concentrations. And so the species at the higher end of the, of the trophic sort of chain that the food pyramid uh, or the food chain, these things like uh, hawks and uh, big predatory birds are particularly uh, endangered by this because as they're eating lots of things, there's this bioaccumulation of heavy metals in their bodies. When the tapeworms are present though, the tapeworms seem to uh, bioaccumulate heavy metals without having any major impacts on the tapeworm. The tapeworm can uh, concentrate, for instance, some heavy metals 2000 times, at 2000 times the background concentration that you find in the ecosystem. And the tapeworm just chuffs along perfectly happily, chugging along, absorbing things in the gut and holding on to these very, very nasty heavy metals, which would otherwise be very, very dangerous for some of these host species. And so in some studies, they found that actually there's 50% of the heavy metals in the entire ecosystem are locked up in tapeworms in the guts of birds. So these tapeworms inadvertently, just through a fluke of their biology and the fact that they, they are basically the ultimate absorbers of ecosystems within ecosystems, that because they've spent millions and millions and millions of years perfecting this ability, we find tapeworms, evidence of tapeworms going back hundreds of millions of years. So they've been doing it a long time. They've been very good at their craft. And so these guys absorb all these heavy metals. And so they're locking them away. So these higher trophic level birds aren't suffering heavy metal poisoning. The ecosystem doesn't have as high a concentration necessarily um, of heavy metals. So it's a, it's a really good impact that these tapeworms are having. And it's inadvertent. The tapeworm is not getting necessarily a benefit from this, but the birds and the wider ecosystem are seeing real benefits from these nasty heavy metals being locked up. Wow. Yeah, they're almost acting as like a, you know, in the same way, let's say uh, healthy soil acts as a carbon sink for carbon, they're acting as like a heavy metal sink. Absolutely. In, yeah. in a way. Uh, is it true that I've, I've heard some stories that, you know, I don't know if it's tapeworms specifically or hookworms, but some worms actually have some autoimmune benefits to humans if they're in low volumes. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah that certainly. So, so there was this idea that was proposed, would have been a couple of decades ago now, um, called the hygiene hypothesis. And essentially there was a researcher who was looking at kids in the developed world and looking at kids in the developing world, and she was finding, or she was, she was noticing, which is always almost always the foundation of really good science, of like just observation and then going forward with that. And so she was noticing that in the developing world, there's almost no cases of autoimmune disease, no asthma, no allergies, very, very rare. And then you go to the developed world, and we're absolutely uh, full of riddled with people that have all sorts of nasty allergies and autoimmune diseases and things like that. And so she started thinking about why that might be the case, because essentially in autoimmune and allergies and things like that, the body overreacts to some antigen. So sometimes it's an antigen from eggs or something, and then you have this major anaphylactic reaction, and your airways close up and everything. And essentially that's the body uh, being a bit too trigger happy. 
with its immune response to some sort of uh, what it perceives as a threat, but which basically we know isn't a threat for most people. We've been eating eggs for millennia. Eggs are fine normally, unless you're an anaphylactic. So the body doesn't quite learn how to uh, modulate its immune response, its reaction to certain antigens. And her idea basically, which has been put forward and is now reasonably well supported by quite a lot of uh, published evidence, published data, is that uh, when you have some low levels of parasitic worms, so things like hookworms, in, in low levels, we don't want them too high, or they start to cause anemia and they can have other nasty impacts, but at lower levels, being there, having a, a real threat, the body gets experience and training on what a real threat is and how to appropriately respond with appropriate force. So we don't nuke everything. We just start to produce some immunoglobulins and then we start to produce some um, some uh, different, uh, different pathways, immune pathways um, are activated, which help to attack these worms. But in the process, it's essentially training the immune system to react properly, particularly the Th2 wing of the immune system. Um, and people have taken this forward. So the general idea is we have some low levels of worms. It trains our otherwise very naive immune systems to react properly. Um, and of course, people in developing world, there's, there's in the developing world, there's much less, uh, much fewer, far fewer pernickety parents that want to keep every single surface cleaned and bleached and wiped down eight times a day kind of thing. So children actually encounter filth. I remember when I was a little kid, I was sort of rolling around on the floor in our house. You have dogs around. So there's dog hair on the floor and probably very minute uh, amounts of dog fecal matter. Dogs aren't the cleanest things. You have dirty flies that have fallen on the ground. And of course, we all put that in our mouths. And I mean, I've never had an allergy in my life. Not that anecdote means anything scientifically, really. Um, but we lived a very dirty uh, sort of childhood out in the country, playing in the mud, bringing worms and turtles and things home. And the same thing with some kids in developing countries is they're not living in these clean, sterile uh, bubbles. Uh, they're, they're living out in, in a bit of filth and you need a bit of filth. Our immune system has evolved in filth for human history. We've been meeting these pathogens as we grow up and we've been learning how our immune systems learn how to attack them. Um, so of course, uh, when those are absent, um, you can have issues. And so a really nice example is uh, there's a nasty uh, disease called Crohn's disease, which is sort of an inflammation of the, the gut lining. And when people in, in some clinical trials have been administered very small doses of hookworm, the symptoms of the Crohn's disease start to ease up. And it's probably because the immune system is realizing, oh, oh, well, actually this part of the body isn't actually a threat because there's a real threat there. Let's get that instead. Let's, uh, let's, let's control ourselves somewhat. So having some parasites can actually be somewhat beneficial. So in that case, we wouldn't actually call them parasites. We'd call them mutualistic helmets or mutualistic worms kind of thing that are living with us. I'm pretty confident that coming into this podcast, most of you did not see any particular upside to the existence of tapeworms. Now, I've also read in places that parasites can have formidable impacts on host population sizes. So I was curious to dig into this topic a bit with Mackenzie. It seems to be a sort of very heterogeneous pattern. So for instance, in some species, uh, certainly in agri the whole foundation of say modern, what I would call modern agriculture, and I don't mean uh, 
what some would call, say, synthetic agriculture, monoculture agriculture. I don't consider that modern agriculture. That's 20th century agriculture. And we increasingly know that that's not a, good, a very mm-hmm. good agriculture. I, I'm, I'm happy to argue with people who want to. So that we'll have a debate. You're not going to get any argument here. So, (laughs) yeah, you're good. What I would call modern agriculture, which is agriculture where we say, use, say, integrated pest management, instead of going and spraying the field with neonicotinoids, instead, in modern, what I would call modern agriculture, next generation agriculture, we have a careful combination of um, biological controls, very, very selective use of pesticides. cultural controls. So these are things like if you say cut off the stalks of grapevines, then you remove them from the field. So they're not acting as this source of of fungus and and, and other things, or in some cases, so you're you're having some sort of cultural impact on the some behavioral change to how you're managing the fields, things like this. Mechanical control, we use pheromone traps and things like that. This is what modern agriculture is starting to look like. And people are getting higher yields. It's better for the environment. So there's lots of impacts, lots of great impacts. One of that is bio, one major component of that is biological control. And so for instance, I grew up on a, on a winery, on a vineyard out in the Arrow Valley in Victoria. My dad retired. He was a geology professor. He started a, he, he planted up a vineyard. That's where I grew up. We used to have uh, nasty pests like light brown apple moth, which would damage the crops. So they release parasitoid insects. So these can be little parasitoid flies, but more commonly they're little parasitoid wasps. And the parasitoid wasp will come and lay its egg within the moth. And then the egg will hatch and it'll basically eat the moth from the inside out, a little bit like the movie Alien. You see the same, any of your listeners who have roses, if you go out and look at your roses in the late spring, early summertime, you'll see that some of them will be these sort of little brown husks. And these are aphid mummies. And essentially a wasp has come along or a little parasitic fly and it's laid an egg in your aphid. And that egg has now grown up and killed the aphid and out has popped a parasitic wasp. And so one of the central tenets of this sort of biological control is that you have this, uh, these two sort of, uh, what would you call them? Waves, these peaks that are chasing each other. And you have a peak in your parasite population. And then following that a, a week later, you have this peak in your parasitoid population. So as your as your sort of pest population, your aphid population goes up, the parasite, parasites then infect the, the aphids. And then as the aphids start to decline because they've all been infected, your parasites start to increase as they all start to emerge from the infected aphids. And then of course, as the host population drops down, the parasite population follows it because it doesn't have enough hosts. And so you have this gentle ecological dance going on continuously, this sort of gentle ripples of populations going up and down, up and down, and always the host being chased by the parasite. And so in insects, we see this pattern really, really beautifully, and it's the foundation of next generation agriculture. In vertebrate populations, we don't see this so much. It doesn't, certainly the data I've seen doesn't suggest that, I haven't seen very much compelling or convincing evidence that parasites are having huge impacts on say, regulating zebras or wildebeest or something like that. Maybe there is data out there, maybe I haven't seen it, Maybe it needs to be studied more intensely, but I haven't seen very strong evidence of it. That being said, parasites we know do mediate the behavior of vertebrate hosts. So for instance, we know that in things like kangaroos, that they will avoid eating, they they have a huge diversity, really great diversity. My old professor at Melbourne University was the world expert on macropod, kangaroo, intestinal parasites, Ian Beveridge. And he was constantly, endlessly describing all these new worms from the guts of kangaroos and wallabies and 
wallaroos and all these sort of wonderful Australian uh, big marsupials. And they actually found that these kangaroos are passing out all these eggs of all these different parasitic worms, roundworms and tapeworms and things. And they found that in areas where pasture or grass has been soiled or the kangaroos can smell or see the poo of other kangaroos, they avoid eating in these areas. And the idea is this is probably to avoid ingesting parasite eggs. They have sense, don't eat where you shit kind of thing. So they, so where kangaroos have been feeding, in some sense, the parasites are acting as this selective pressure to not graze on areas where there's lots of parasites because you don't want to get sick with more parasites. So in some sense, it's, it, it, not only the kangaroos fertilize these, these uh, areas of the forest or areas of the grassland with their, their, their leavings, but the parasites that are present in the dung also act as this deterrent for kangaroos to then come back and graze there. So it actually gives this area of the grassland some reprieve to regrow from this otherwise quite large herbivore pressure. So they are mediating where the herbivores are grazing. So it's not only this, uh, what would you call it, uh, landscape of fear, there's a landscape of pestilence as well, where animals are avoiding certain parts of the ecosystem because of the presence of pathogens. Um, so landscape of fear is this big ecological idea that uh, uh, species will avoid places with high predator pressure. And we see this in, say, wolves, elk and, and deer and things will avoid areas of high wolf density. And so that'll create heterogeneity within the ecosystem, create more diversity. So there is potentially this landscape of pestilence as well. So given all of the dynamic types of impact parasites have, well, surely they've been a major focus of scientific efforts for centuries, and we know a great deal about them, right? Well, unfortunately, not so much. We are way behind where we should be on our collective parasite knowledge. Now, part of this is due to the technology needed to observe and analyze them, but a big part is just due to prioritization. That is starting to change, but that change needs to be accelerated. How would you sum up what we know about parasites and what we don't know about parasites? Uh, we know very little about parasites. Yeah. So for starters, we, we know very little about their diversity. If you can't put a, a name to a face, it's very hard to study anything about that organism. So we've barely made, we, we've, it's, we, we, we've not made good progress yet on describing and naming all the parasites on earth. So for instance, uh, we've described say of just parasitic worms, we, we think we, we've described about 76,000 species. Some estimates place, oh, this is, sorry, this is just parasitic worms of vertebrates, so animals with backbones, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, mammals. Of this group, the parasitic worms that live in them, we've described 76,000 species globally. Some estimates put that diversity at 300,000 globally. So we're not even halfway there. We're, we're, we're not even a third of the way there. <laughs> and that's just parasitic worms. Then we invertebrates. Then we think of all the parasitic worms and insects. Then we think of all the protozoa of, of mammals. These are things like uh, amarias, trypanosomas, malarias, babesias, things like this. We've barely cracked it. So there's this huge sea of diversity that we, we have no idea who they are, how to recognize them, or what they're doing in our ecosystems. So we're in kind of the, the pioneering age of... Uh, parasitology to some extent. If you think about birds, we know almost everything about birds. Birds are so heavily studied. There's almost an ornithologist per bird species. So, so many, it's, it's overcrowded. Ornithologists, forget birds, come and study bird tapeworms instead, please. That would help <laughs> us a lot. So well, I, we know a little bit about their ecology. 
We don't know about most of them, but of the species we do know, there are some species which we know a reasonable about, amount about their ecology. There are very certainly overstudied species like mosquitoes, we know a lot about them. Ticks, we know quite a lot about them. So it's a very biased playing field as far as what we know about them. Increasingly though, we have genomic technologies where say metabarcoding, uh, uh, metagenomics. Um, in metagenomics, you can essentially sequence all the DNA within say, here in Singapore, in, in uh, the lab that I'm based in, um, this is not me personally, this is my boss. Essentially, they've been collecting poo from the Raffles banded langer, which is a new uh, a critically endangered or an endangered, a highly threatened primate species that's basically only found here in Singapore and in Southern Johor. So the Southern tip of the peninsula Malaysia that's sort of um, next to Singapore. And these wonderful uh, primates spend almost all their times in the trees. So sampling parasites or sampling anything from them is incredibly difficult. However, primatologists, I mean here particularly Andy Ung is the, the really the Raffles banded Langer specialist. She follows them around the forest, waits till they poo, collects it up in a tube, and then it's sequenced. And they look for all the different uh, reads, the different uh, uh, chains of DNA that we find in the poo. And you can look at the diet of the Raffles banded Langer. You can look at the genetics of the Raffles banded Langer, and you can look at all the parasites in the Raffles banded Langer. So you can get an idea of what the Langer is eating, who's eating the Langer, and then how stable is the population of the Langers in terms of how much inbreeding is going on and, 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 and that sort of thing. So we're starting, now we have the technology to really be doing big science with big data, studying uh, really all the complicated interactions of, of these parasites um, to really start filling in the, the gaps within this very, very sparse jigsaw puzzle. Mackenzie at this point has done a really great job of setting up why parasites are important. So what does parasite conservation entail? Well, a critical first step of all conservation is observation and data. We need to know more about what we are working to conserve. Imagine trying to save someone's marriage without knowing anything about the couple or why they are drifting apart. Okay, maybe a bad example, but you get the point. So observation and data is one of the 12 steps the parasitology community has identified. What are the other 11? Certainly on very, very, very narrow slivers of human knowledge, I know quite a lot. So say, East Asian ticks, I'm, I'm a reasonable authority on them. And so I know how much I know, and then I know how little is overall known about them. Mm, the more you work on these, the more you realize how, how absolutely little we know about what's going on kind of thing. So the first thing, we, we had 12 steps. I, I, I really like my co-authors. I really like the plan. I would say maybe 12 steps was too much. And I think that there's some overlap between the steps. I think maybe we could have done it in six, but let's go with the 12. <laughs> So the first of our steps was to add parasites to biodiversity surveys. Around the globe now, probably many of your listeners will be zoologists who are in the field gathering some kind of ecological or biological data. Maybe they're ringing birds, maybe they're misnetting uh, birds or, or collecting bats in harp traps or flipping over tiles to look for, for reptiles or amphibians. Maybe they're collecting insects. On if they're collecting them at any or sampling at any great scale, they, they, they will be, there will be parasites there. Maybe they see them, flat flies on the birds, wing mites on the bats, all sorts of different parasites. The problem is zoologists and parasitologists are not talking to each other very much or not talking to each other nearly as much as we need. So we need to be adding parasites to biodiversity surveys because it's all this bycatch that's not getting used. It's just getting thrown back into the ocean essentially. And this is really useful things. In many cases, many of the things that they're seeing 
are lots of new undescribed species. And there are also species which could be impacting the host and the ecology and the conservation of these species. So we need to start adding parasites to, to biodiversity surveys. We need to digitalize and modernize our collections. We have all these collections, in some cases, two centuries, you go to Europe, there's like two centuries worth of biological material which has been collected. This is a great snapshot on parasites in time and parasite diversity. So we need to be digitalizing these so that if I'm sitting here in Singapore, I can look in the collection of the British Museum of Natural History, or I can look in the Tokyo Natural History Science Museum, or Meguro Parasitological Museum, and I can say, okay, you've got this specimen, this specimen, this specimen, and it came from this host. Oh, look, here's a new host interaction record. Here's a species we didn't know interacted with humans, actually is interacting with humans, this kind of stuff. We need to start doing genomics. So we need to use, store, and reuse genomic data. So in many cases, like when we're doing, say, metagenomics on these langers here in Singapore, we produce all this, or my lab produces all this data of the parasite reads that we're getting from the poo of these threatened, these endangered uh, primates. And then, of course, that gets, uh, in many cases, it gets put online. So if people want to then go back and mine that data and look at what parasites are there, maybe they're a roundworm specialist and they barcoded some different roundworms from some different langer species in Southeast Asia, they can go back and look at our genomic data and say, oh, you've got a sequence for that species that I, I actually know who he is. I have a name for this. And then we can start to link, oh, okay, so now we know species A is present in these langers, that kind of stuff. And genomics is the gateway to that. Uh, we need to start documenting diversity decline. So almost no one is looking at, at predicting, projecting, or studying what trends are happening within wild parasite populations. Very often we get funding to do a little snapshot study. Oh, thank you, National Academy of Science. We've got one year to look at the parasites of, I don't know, black bears in Montana or something. I don't know if black bears are in Montana, but let's use that for an example. And so you do it for one year and you've got an idea. Okay, so we've got X number of species in the black bears here, but then we don't go back and check again and we're not doing it yearly. So we have no idea what's happening with particularly very important parasites, which we know have ecological roles. So say the tapeworms in these salt marsh ecosystems that are bioaccumulating all these heavy metals, we have no idea what's happening with them. Maybe they're declining, maybe they're disappearing. As ecosystems tend to become uh, more simple as they're subject in some cases to, to human disturbance. Sometimes you lose these parasites because they're reliant on intricate interactions with many different intermediate host species, particularly things like uh, trematodes, the, the flukes and tapeworms. So if our ecosystems are being simplified, but perhaps we're losing some of these really important parasites. So we have no idea about what's happening with declines or diversity over time. Um, we also don't have a red list for parasites. Um, so there is an IUCN subcommittee on many, many different things. Man, there's, there's subcommittees on primates and there's some committees on arachnids, which is fantastic. Good to see invertebrates getting some representation. There's, uh, seems like a million on different bird groups as if birds need more help. But of course there's none on parasites. So the only parasite or the only like sort of metazoan, what we would call parasite parasite uh, listed on the IUCN is the pygmy hoglass from India. That's it. Hematopinus olivier, and, and that's it. There's like thousands of, we know that there's almost a thousand species of ticks. There's two or 3,000 species of fleas. There's 76,000 species of uh, parasitic worm from vertebrates. None of them are listed. None of them have even been assessed. So we don't have that red list data. There's no legalized protection in most cases. In some cases, they're listed as, say, a rare species in Tasmania, some of the Tasmanian devil roundworms or tapeworm at least is listed 
as a rare species in the state, but that doesn't afford it any legal protection. So for instance, if someone starts damaging the habitat um, or impacting the transmission of that, there's, there's no protection for that species whatsoever. In many cases, there's also not standard methods um, for the translocation or ex situ conservation of parasites. And in many cases, we have all these species in zoos that are harboring parasites and conservationists go in and wipe them out because they have this naive idea that parasites are bad and therefore we must eradicate them. So for instance, the Californian condor louse was deliberately eradicated by quote unquote conservationists at San Diego Zoo. They brought all the last Californian condors into captivity and then some very bright spark among the conservation community decided, oh, well, we even though we don't have any evidence that these lice cause damage in their host, let's, let's eradicate a species because that's what we conservationists are all about. We're all about wiping out species. And so San Diego Zoo wiped out a species deliberately without any evidence to suggest that it caused any peril to its host species, um, which is absolutely ridiculous. And it's this kind of, what would you call it? Species chauvinism at its absolute finest. So we need to be getting these standard methods of protecting species in captivity when we have them or translocating them in, in some standardized kind of way. We need to be capacity building. In many cases, some of the greatest diversity of our parasites are in the developing world. Or in many cases, they're, they're, some of them are in the developed world as well, but the zoologists don't have the training in many cases to be collecting and studying them. So we need to build capacity both in the developed and the developing world so that people can be engaging in this kind of research and this kind of conservation. The next point is we, we need to build parasites into school curricula. So we want kids to be learning about parasites. They learn about butterflies. They learn about uh, food webs. Never have I ever seen a parasite within a school food web, depicted within a school food web. We just assume that the rabbit comes out and then the wolf eats the rabbit and then maybe the bear eats the wolf kind of thing. So it, it's not great. Um, we need to increase more uh, sort of resources and support uh, to, to train conservation practitioners, not just kids, but we need to be training conservationists in this. And then of course, we need to be doing public outreach. We need to be engaging with media more than we have. Parasitologists have been sitting in the basements of museums and universities for far too long. We need to come out of our ivory towers and we need to tell people why parasites are interesting, why they're affecting the globe, history, ecosystems, and why we need to save them. And the final thing is that we need to actually try and our, our goal, pretty lofty goal, describe half of all parasite diversity. Who knows when that'll happen, but we're all, we're all making a crack at it. I, I do parasite ecology, I do parasite conservation, but I'm also a, an avid taxonomist and systematist. So I actually do describe new species of parasites and I do revisions on groups and I write monographs so that people can identify them, they can recognize, put faces to names. And, and if there's new species, we give them names and we provide adequate descriptions and we lodge holotypes within museums. So we, we create the resources for people to do further study to actually track these species through time. So that's kind of the, a long-winded uh, way of sort of describing these 12 points and, and why they're useful. Um, but I think if we slowly chip away at them, insect conservation, say 20 years ago, at the start of the, the 21st century, was pretty mediocre. You say, oh, let's say bees, and people would say, oh, well, bees sting. I don't really like bees very much. Now, people are putting up bee hotels. Um, they're planting they're ripping up their lawns and they're planting wildflower meadows. So I think there is a lot of hope. In 20 years, we've gone a really, really long way in insect conservation. And I think the next 20 years, we can go a really long way in parasite conservation. That's my hope. And, and I think that we're tracking towards that as people increasingly recognize that we shouldn't be saving. I don't know, in, a, in, a, in a, uh, an article I, I wrote a few years ago on parasites, I had this kind of, this is kind of to paraphrase myself, but essentially I said, if we, we all claim to love biodiversity and we wanna leave our kids with the same biodiversity 
that we inherited. But many of us only want to save species based on how cute they are or the radiance of their blooms or how much affection we feel towards them. And if we do that, we very, our ecosystems very quickly degenerate into gardens and they're not functional. We have a lot of pandas and we have a lot of orchids, but we don't have the intricacy and the interactions that we, we need in functioning ecosystems. So we may as well just have zoos if that is the conservation outlook we want to take. We really need to be having a very holistic view towards ecosystems and we protect all of the diversity of species. We don't have a species, we don't exhibit, we don't try and forward this species chauvinism of, oh, I'm only going to save vertebrates because I like vertebrates, or I'm only going to save flowering plants because conifers and mosses are too boring, ferns are, ferns are rubbish, anything. We need to save all species and we need to protect the intricacy of the interactions between them. That, that is really where I think conservation should be going in coming years. Forget about pandas, or don't forget about pandas, but think more than just pandas. We need to think about the ecosystems they exist in and all the interactions that are occurring there. That's the, that's the kind of takeaway message, I would say. Yeah, it's a very human issue to, to you know, sort of care about the things we're drawn to emotionally, unfortunately. And you know, earlier this year, we put a fundraising project together as an example of this. On, on protecting polymeda snails, which are endemic to Cuba and are, are collapsing population-wise uh, for a number of reasons, climate from habitat loss, but also from their shells being poached. And these polymeda snails are critical for uh, forest health because the fungi they consume, their relationship with tree moss. And you know the response we got was just not the same when we put anything out there about elephants or rhinos or you know, those, those sorts of species that people are already drawn to, they they grow up in the media seeing positive relationships with, and, you know, snails are just something that people, you know, don't think about as an example, but they're, they're not very they're, sexy. No, not at all. I mean, I, I find snails kind of sexy and cute and interesting and, and polymedas <laughs> in particular, their shells are absolutely stunning. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, people don't, aren't raised and aren't taught to think of, you know, snails as forest engineers. Well, they are, mm. right? Um, and, uh, and that's also, I think, part of what we have to do is find the communication. So when I started talking about snails as forest engineers, people's ears perked up. And then mm. they started thinking, okay, well, I know engineers are important. I have, mm. a, I have a relationship with that word. And then I describe why they're engineers. And all of a sudden, people start to, to start to change their mindset. So I think we also have to figure out ways to, you know, kind of communicate it in, you know, quote, unquote, layman terms. Of mm. you know of why what these species do regardless of the you know ecological a lot of it's marketing marketing yeah, a lot of marketing exactly and so as soon as I you know found people responding to you know snails as forest engineers that was the trigger that people started responding right? mm. so that's just an example of like you know I think the things we have to kind of pursue and and mm. do those marketing campaigns for. A 2006 study in California found that 78 percent of the food web is connected via parasites. Parasite knowledge could be the key to early detection and protection against a world of viruses and bacteria. Yet this work is incredibly underfunded, especially when you venture outside of widespread issues such as malaria. No doubt that is important and should continue to get the resources it needs, but it represents a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the world of parasites. I combed through the sites of some of the biggest environmental NGOs in the world, Greenpeace, the Environmental Defense Fund, WWF, hardly a mention of parasites. This lack of focus is starting to impact future generations of scientists and conservationists too. As Mackenzie lays out, we are developing great planetary and ecosystem modelers, but they often don't know the details about the life that inhabits them. In many cases, most 
biology undergrads or, or, I don't know, biology, conservation, wildlife undergrads, science undergrads, will never encounter parasitology in many cases. The US has a reasonably good history and culture of teaching parasitology, and it's been a real center of parasitology study. Britain, to some extent, does as well. Many other countries don't do it particularly well, and increasingly in the US, parasitology is being cut. So people are not teaching it because they're going for, what you say, kind of what I consider uh, somewhat glitzy kind of trashy subjects. So things like, oh, we're gonna uh, teach, uh, say, climate, global, global change biology. I actually work on a huge amount of global change and I quite like global change biology, but I think in some sense, it's, it's no substitute for good biological and ecological skills, I would say. So for instance, if your student is taking a subject on sustainability and a subject on water management and a subject on climate change and a subject on land use change, they come out of it and they know a lot about uh, different impacts facing our world. But if you say, okay, go and identify some butterflies or what are these wildflowers? They have no idea. And we're increasingly training great modelers that are biologically illiterate and they can't identify species and they don't know how to go out into the field and, and formulate good ecological study design. And so essentially, I mean, they do good work, I think, in some sense. They're good at collecting big amounts of data, synthesizing it and doing interesting sort of analysis on it. Some of the analysis is a bit dodgy um, because they don't know the data or they don't know the species very well. You see this a lot in global bee data. Um, a whole bunch of, say, some modelers or some ecologists will pick up a whole bunch of bee data and they'll come to the conclusion that, oh, this, this bumblebee is, is endangered because we only, or it's co-endangered because we, in our network, our interaction network, we only found it feeding on this one flower. And the truth is it's this really uh, uh, polyzenic uh, bumblebee that's feeding on all sorts of flowers, but they're just missing it from their data set. And so they don't know enough about the bumblebee to realize that we're making really stupid assumptions here. So we have all these great modelers that are coming up and we need modelers, but we need modelers to be ecologically literate. And when we remove parasitology programs or we move remove entomology programs or field botany programs, we have people that can run our packages, but they can't identify flowers. They can't identify parasites. They can't identify insects. And if you can't do that, it's very hard for you to contextualize, contextualize the data that you're throwing into these models. So I think all students should be taking, all biology students should take an entomology subject. All of them should take a parasitology subject. All of them should be taking a field botany subject. They should really be ecologically literate. And right now we're not, we're not doing that. And we're going to really shoot ourselves in the foot when we have a whole bunch of biological modelers that don't know what the flower outside their window is, or they don't know what the bee that's come to visit their, their windowsill garden is. And it's yeah. really not good because a lot of biology and a lot of natural history and sort of stuff begins from making very innocuous little observations and then running with them oh, there's fewer, fewer of these butterflies this year. But of course, if you can't identify the butterfly, it's all just aerial plankton. Or as uh, I remember when I was a botany undergraduate, they used to call it the green mist. You look at a forest, you have no idea what any of the trees, the mosses, the grasses are. It's just sort of a green sort of much of the muchness. To close things out, Mackenzie and I chatted about the importance of putting more attention towards our biodiversity crisis alongside our climate one. That conversation led down a fun path talking de-extinction and much more. So if you have another 20 minutes available, I'd recommend enjoying our back and forth here a bit. Not enough people uh, recognize and put equal weight towards what I say is the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. You know, mm. like they're both. The climate crisis is getting lots of 
attention. Absolutely. And, and, and I would argue that so- it's much less important than the biodiversity crisis. It's happening at a much uh, lower rate than biodiversity decline. And even, and even if like, you know, the amount of species aside- that will be destroyed by climate change is going to be a fraction of those that will be destroyed by land use change. When you clear hectares and hectares every second of the Malaysian or the Bornean rainforest, that pales in comparison. Sure, there's a lot of species in coral reefs and coral bleaching will wipe out tens of thousands of species. Really, lots and lots and lots. There are hundreds of thousands of species on, say, uh, a few kilometers of, of Bornean rainforest. So it's just like scales of difference in terms of the speed of the impact. Once the forest is gone, it's gone. Everything's gone. Climate well, change, this. in some sense, species can migrate sometimes. Uh, I mean, climate change is important, but I think biodiversity extinction crisis is just as important and is not getting as much attention as it otherwise could, which I think I'm kind of preaching to the converted or we're preaching to each other. Yeah, yeah. The, the analogy I try to make for people, which has been helpful lately, is I, I say, like, well, think of this as, you know, a car that has a flat tire and a dead battery. And if you only fix one, you're not driving that car, right? Mm. So I think of like, you know, the climate crisis and global warming and the biodiversity crisis and species collapse and ecosystem collapse as the, you know, the, the flat tire and the dead battery. And we all know if you only fix the the tire, but the battery is still dead. And if you only fix the battery, but you still got no tire, you're not going anywhere, Mm. right? You're still stuck in the mud, so to speak. And so I think of it that way because they're, they're certainly overlapping, right? There's a lot of, very much so. there's a lot of correlation causation on both sides to each other. And, uh, but they're, they're distinct enough that they, they, they need to be talked about, you know, distinctly. And, 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 and that's what's, it's, it's been, you know, I get questions a lot of time in Animalia because, you know, we cover both, you know, the, the, you know, decarbonizing our electric grid and, you know, polymeter snails and their forest engineers. And we get people on both sides. We'll have people, uh, you know, write us, write me in and say, who are like all about the species and biodiversity. Like, why are you talking about the electricity grid? And then I'll get mm. the people that are really into, you know, kind of the decarbonizing the grid and say, oh, why are you talking about snails? Mm. And I try to, you know, you know, I, I try to answer everybody all the time that emails me and say, look, these are a separate but highly correlated issues. And, and they're, they're, they're so, they're both, so they're both important. And, you know, you might be right uh, that, you know, one is more important than the other. And it's, if it is, it's probably the biodiversity collapse um, because we will not recover from that. Um, you know, we, Once in the some ways- it's gone, it's gone. Correct. In some ways, I have more confidence that we could, you know, someday <laughs> at scale, pull carbon out of the atmosphere. And there's technology that's showing that like, that it's is- It's basically possible. an engineering problem. Correct. Then, as far as then, I can see bringing us then yeah then then bringing an ecosystem back you want to do de-extinction very very hard very in the next sort of 20 years we'll probably be able to do it but whether you want to spend millions of dollars bringing back uh moss might well and whether you whether we can hmm. do it is different than whether we should too right because you know there's a there's a huge initiative for example going on um to bring back you know funding to bring back woolly mammoths Hmm. i read about that and the company behind it and how the turn you know they're now using climate change as their proxy for why this needs to be done. But like, I mean, you know, the, to, to the work that needs to be done to even get to a, a single live healthy woolly mammoth and then a herd of them and then multiple herds of them could be decades out. And we also, there were a number of sort of, in my mind, like conditions that the woolly mammoth evolved through in the first place that we don't understand that we can't exactly replicate either. 
So I, you know, I think the notion of bringing species back from extinction as like, even if we can do it scientifically, there are another other, a lot of other variables than just, you know, can we, do we have the DNA strands or not? Right. Can we, can mm. we create it, can we create a healthy embryo or not? Like, I just think there's, well, I mean, part of the utility that. of bringing it back is that it's, it's a bit like the, the space race cool to get boots on the moon. Right. But we get mm. a huge number of other benefits from the process of working out how to put boots on the moon. So for instance, the amount of, uh, say genomic technology development developments in genomic technology that we get from engineering a mammoth is astounding. It's staggering. It's probably worth more than bringing back the actual mammoth mm. in the amount that we learn and the new techniques we develop. So, I mean, like NASA invented all sorts of wonderful things during the space race to help man get there. And then we still use lots of those things, uh, today kind of thing. So I think, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm very, very, very strongly supportive of bringing back mammoths because essentially we know they're around till about 6,000 years ago in sort of far Eastern Russia. We know that it's probably a human caused collapse. And the general idea of bringing these back, back these mammoths is like, of course, we're bringing back an ecologically useful species. We know that certainly elephants, other, other uh, uh, members of this group have massive ecological impacts in the Southeast Asian or the Asian forests, as well as in the African savanna and African uh, woodlands. Um, but Russia is basically sitting, Siberia is sitting on this, the biggest store of greenhouse gases, methane locked in this permafrost of almost anywhere on earth. If that gets out, I mean, there's no going back. I, I don't Correct. see and, and, and within the next two centuries of being able to get on top of that. Yeah, so if we can keep that frozen by removing the, the tree layer and ensuring that our First, we know that trees somewhat uh, insulate, uh, uh, don't act as great insulators for the permafrost necessarily, that they get warmer than just bare grass surface. So if we can remove those trees, which we know mammoths, or we know that elephants certainly do, probably some evidence that mammoths did it as well. If we can remove that, if we can get large herds of grazing megafauna to continuously be uncovering the, the, the grass, moving the insulating layer of snow during the winter, if we can do that at scale, we can lock in like, to some extent, I, I can't see saving the earth from climate change without locking in Siberian permafrost. I don't think that there's any other way. I mean, like, I mean, like you can do all the other stuff, but if you don't lock in that Siberian permafrost and you don't lock in all that terrible methane, like methane is so much worse than CO2 mm -hmm. in terms of greenhouse gases and insulator in the atmosphere. If we don't lock that in, we're like stuffed. Yeah, I believe, I, I, believe, I believe methane uh sort of uh, kind of heats up the atmosphere about 20 or 25 x times carbon in terms yeah, yeah, of the yeah. heat it heat it, it captures but i guess I, I agree with you on all that my worry is it's de-extinction is a is a bit of a slippery slope oh yeah of course and if legislators of, can then just say oh well let the let the panda go extinct or let the javan rhino go extinct we'll just we'll bring, bring it back, back in 100 years when technology is better it's lazy and politicians are very prone to doing that to cut costs and cut funding and austerity and all that sort of thing. So yeah, it's not a great. Well, it's uh, all, and, but it's thing. also the slippery slope in a sense that we could, we could sort of abuse the extinction to bring back things that, you know, and the, the impact it's going to have on current species and ecosystems. We may, we may rush the science of that in, in, in because of, but of the, course, the, modern the excitement of the excitement of the extinction. Uh, uh, in some sense, anthropogenic. Almost all of our modern ecosystems are in some sense anthropogenic. Basically, all the almost all the all the data seems to be pointing towards the fact that almost all of 
our modern, say, megafauna extinctions are almost all human-induced. Mm-hmm. Almost all. Certainly, Australia's are pretty well human-induced. A lot of data is coming out that's suggesting that the North American uh, extinction is induced. People will say, oh, well, it was climate change. And I would say, oh, well, it's funny how climate change seems to follow humans around within a sort of two or 3,000-year window. And even though all the megafauna basically was extinct on Australia 40,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago, and North America, it goes extinct just as humans arrive. And then weirdly enough on New Zealand, it, it all the megafauna disappears starting sort of 900 years ago or 1100 years ago as the Maori arrive. And then on Vanuatu, it happens 3000 years ago as Polynesians arrive. And so you're kind of like, well, it's funny how climate change seems to follow humans perfectly. It's almost as if it's not just climate change and that humans are having this big impact. So we have all these sort of depauperate ecosystems where we've lost all these host species and parasite species that were previously having all these big impacts. So North America used to have prairie cheetahs that were running along. They had camels, they had horses. Lots of these species are like cave bears, lions. All these species are gone. The ecosystem you're looking at today is this depauperate shadow of what it formerly was. Australia used to be covered in huge grazing wombats, diprotodon, the size of Volkswagen beetles lumbering through the, the ecosystem, short-faced kangaroos, procoptodon, which were massive browsers and, and, and liberating all this carbon and nitrogen from, uh, from trees and shrubs into the, the soil and locking it up as carbon in the soil. All these species are gone because humans basically marched out of Africa where species had evolved with us and we lived reasonably amicably with them um, in the cradle of our evolution, Africa. Once we marched out, we marched across Europe and wiped everything out. And then we marched across Eurasia and wiped everything out. And then we marched into Australia and North America and South America and just wiped countless, countless species out. So we're living in these like, these are all anthropogenic to some extent ecosystems. We've lost all of these big megafauna. So in some sense, we could say that, oh, uh, I don't, we could take this, it's a very kind of British idea, this idea of like, we'll lock ecosystems into this static kind of, oh, well, we want bluebells and we want hedgerows and we want trees coppiced at a very particular stage. And if this doesn't happen, well, we've completely failed. And it's not as though the ecosystem looked different before we arrived, because it's always been like this. We've always been coppicing. So that's what nature is supposed to look like. Oh, we've never had cheetahs or cave lions in uh, America. Oh, I've never seen them in my life. So this must be what the prairie ecosystem looks like. But actually, it's this really depauperate shell of what it formerly was. So in some sense, one could argue, I would argue, that we have a responsibility to return ecosystems to a state in which we found them as well as we can do. Otherwise, we're basically playing into this kind of, maybe it's not a popular opinion, but this kind of, uh, this, this myth of what the ecosystem should look like, which is simply due to this changing baseline syndrome of like, this is what it kind of looked like to me, so I guess this is what it should be, kind of thing. Or this idea that ecosystems shouldn't have this kind of complex dynamism of Species should be disappearing from ecosystems and recolonizing ecosystems constantly. There should be continuous expansions and contractions of many species. Um, so, I mean, that would be my argument, which is kind of a, a contra argument. And I mean, we don't necessarily have to agree, but that's simply one idea in the marketplace of ideas of how we should be treating ecosystems. And I think this idea of, say, trophic rewilding, you see this, say, in NEP in the UK, they used to have this, this uh, very conventional farm. They're wonderful. If you do a podcast, you should do one with them. They had this conventional farm and they, they basically gave up and let the scrub grow and they brought back cattle to act as uh, sort of surrogates for the lost auric, which were the, the ancient primeval cattle of Europe. They brought in uh, ponies to replicate the wild horses that, that were lost from Europe at the end of the Ice Age. Um, they brought in pigs to replicate wild boar. And so these species are, are acting as these surrogates, these proxies, ecological proxies for the species or the, the populations of the, 
animals that used to be there doing the same ecological tasks and suddenly all this biodiversity has, has come back. They have rare and endangered butterflies that are found nowhere else because they've suddenly brought back the ecosystem that was formerly there, this sort of open woody grassland mosaic ecosystem. And people used to think that Britain was just this giant swath of trees and a squirrel could go from one side of the aisle to the other walking along the branches of trees without ever having to touch the ground. And increasingly they're finding that when they bring back this megafauna and, and have it in appropriate carrying capacity for the land that they're getting these wonderful benefits and these ecosystems, which really Britain hasn't seen for a very, very long time. And suddenly all these species which have evolved with these ecosystems are bouncing back where formerly they've been incredibly rare because they're living in these sort of degraded and anthropogenic uh, systems, which are really not natural or, or quite recent artifacts of human colonization of, of the British Isles. But I mean, that's just one, one uh, idea. And I'm sure there's many people that would dissent from that idea and say, oh, well, I disagree with you for X number of reasons. And that's perfectly fine. This is just one idea that I would forward. And it's quite a radical idea, but it's it's one idea. Yeah, I don't I don't personally disagree with with anything that you that you said. I think the caution, you know, once de extinction becomes you know viable, right? I think the the caution is that we don't, you know, it's going to need some protocols. And some, you know, some some structure, and that we don't just kind of race at it with private funding, and it becomes an arms race um, um, on the, you know, sort of to to, to um, you know, kind of uh, without without thinking about the larger system and how, you know, you can imagine a world where you know two different entities are are racing towards the extinction of two different species in the same area without any <clears throat> sort of communication with each other on like. You know how they're going to be brought back and inter and, and interact with each other and and interrelate and and the and effects of that. So, um, I'm very for it. Just so you know, just knowing that it, you know it needs to be it needs to have protocols and it needs to you know have some structure and some ordinance to it. Um, that it's Certainly. not just become you, you can't know, do essentially gorilla de extinction. Yes, not gorilla yes. gorilla, but gorilla. Uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> as in gorilla warfare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would be against gorilla de extinction and for. Um, you know, highly thoughtful and organized de-extinction. Uh, but I just, you know, I think I'm jaded by humans a little bit. And, you know, we Absolutely. tend to sort yeah. of go towards What's the gorilla horrible? approach more so. Uh, you know, we, we, tend to, we tend too much to go look at short-term fixes and benefits. I mean, when I see the mammoth stuff, it looks very, uh, to me, maybe I have a lower standard of organization, but to me, it looks from what I see from the Pleistocene Park in Russia and from uh, George Church's group in uh, the US, it looks like it's being done in a very careful The mammoth way specifically, I, th I think, is. It's just, you know, um, because now, you know, Again, we're get we're we could probably talk mm. about this as for a while as a separate as a separate topic. Um, but there's a if too much funding then gets the thing with with private funding and venture funding, right? And mm. and, and and churches organization is now venture funded. Mm. Uh, venture funded tends to sort of be like a rapid snowball effect. And now all of a sudden, mm. once one you know sort of uh, stone gets turned over, now everybody in the venture space wants to fund a de extension project. And then there's then a, a, then a, a you know cascade of those that are not as thoughtful, but mm. everyone wants that in their portfolio. 
so to speak, yeah. right? This is how yeah, finance yeah, yeah. people think too much. And yeah. so that's more of the the worry I have is not so much yeah, it's dangerous purchase extent, mammoth specific project, but the cascade effect that could sort of come from that, knowing how the finance world operates. Mm. That's all. Yeah. Um, but uh, a, a fun discussion and and something that uh, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna be discussing um, and seeing a lot more of in the decades mm. and the years ahead. So it's it's good to start having these discussions about it. Yeah. And 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 George Church, I think we'll we'll, we'll end up looking back at him uh, as a very important figure in Definitely. the the annals yeah. of science for sure. Um, well, uh, I really appreciate the time, and uh, I've learned so much about you know parasitology and and the world of parasites through this conversation, and I imagine all of our listeners will as well. And uh, yeah, kudos to to the work you do. It's super valuable. It's super interesting. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's like a. Li- a you know that for the rest of your life, uh, you will never be bored. And that's definitely, sure that's, that's gotta yep. be, uh, <laughs> um, fun to, 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 to sort of hang your hat on, so to speak. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thanks again for the time. Thanks again for the work and, and everything and doing and, and, and sharing it with our, with our community. Thank you very, very much for having me on and, 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 and because, uh, you don't get this opportunity all that often. If people do want to follow me, um, you can find me on Facebook at Mackenzie Quark Parasitologist or on Twitter at M-L-K-W-A-K, M-L Quark. We will we'll also put the, we'll put it in the show notes as well. <laughs> no, 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 it's totally not straight. No, it's, it's actually important, right? Because this is how they can continue to follow the work um, and follow the progress if they're, if they're you know, really curious based on Absolutely. this discussion. So I will also put it in the episode notes. All your, and, if, your and if people have been in, 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 sort of inspired by this or interested to even a small extent in parasitology, absolutely do go and talk to sort of academics in your or parasitologists in your local university, because nine times out of 10, they're very happy to have students, people that say want to do one, one day a week volunteering in their lab, that kind of stuff. If you want to get involved, academics museums are always very, very, very happy to have uh, people come and, and want to be involved because we need way more parasitologists working on this huge, huge, huge chunk of biodiversity. So if it's something that interests you, whether it's ticks, mosquitoes, tapeworms, protozoa, whatever, there will be someone that will love to have you. And we could definitely do with the help. All right, that's it for today. Hopefully you came out of this as a parasite advocate. You may not be rushing to get a tapeworm of your own. We would not recommend that actually but you may now foster a bit more respect for that parasitic flatworm. Big thanks to Mackenzie for joining. You can follow his work with the links in the show notes. As always, thank you for supporting Animalia, and thank you for standing up for this big, beautiful planet and all the life on it. Until next time.